I managed to meet Matt very briefly uh, before the service, but didn't quite get to cover all of this. But I do have it on. Um, I've heard uh, about a bit about Matt, so I'll just introduce him a little bit. So I've heard that he's 54 years young um, and has been married to Isabel for the last 31 years. Uh, they have four kids and have lived in Hawthorne for nearly 30 years uh, until last year where they moved out to the Yarra Valley. Uh, they were involved at Hawthorne West Baps there, uh, and Matt's also been heavily involved in servants, community housing, and the Ping Pongathon. Um, he's also he also drives Uber, so if you need a lift home tonight, uh, maybe hit him up after the service. Um, but no, we're very keen to hear what um, the Lord has laid on your heart, Matt, to share with us tonight. So um, yeah, once you've got your microphone sorted, I'll invite you up. But I'll just pray for you as you're making your way down. Father, I just thank you that you've brought uh, Matt here tonight uh, to share with us. Thank you that you have been yeah, speaking to him as he prepares to share with us. And I just ask that you will yeah, speak your words through Matt, that you give us um, yeah, ready hearts to hear what he has to say. Um, and yeah, I just thank you for yeah, how this is going to help change us and transform our hearts into people who are going to be more like you. In your name, amen. Thanks, hey, thank you. How are we doing for sound? We good? Oh, great. means I can wave my arms around. That's really exciting. Man, you're a long way away. Okay. So good to be here. Thank you. A bit of preamble before I really get stuck into it, okay? First of all... um, as one of the two people who run Ping Pongathon, my colleague David is at the back, if you can just wave David. Um, have a chat with David later, he's a terrific fellow. We are, we're so touched that um, your church community ponged again this year. I think it was for the sixth time in the last seven years that you ponged. I think you had one COVID year off. Um, you've raised over, you raised $10,000 this year, which means that over the years that you've ponged, you've raised over $50,000. It's a huge amount of money. And as an incredible missional expression of who you are as a church community, um, David and I, we we say thank you. And we say thank you on behalf of the the seven partners that Bella was talking about earlier. Because of the $50,000 that you guys have raised over these years, there are dozens, maybe hundreds of people throughout Southeast Asia who are now living lives of freedom. The things that we take for granted. So from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for how you care. Um, Yes, I do sound emotional. Um, I am an emotional person. Um, The chances of me getting through this talk without crying are probably quite low. Um, If that does occur, don't don't feel um, sorry for me. We're just going to get on with it, okay? And I'm just going to I'm just going to push through, and perhaps you'll perhaps you'll say a prayer for me. When um, Lauren talked to me um, two or three months ago now about this particular talk, um, I just jumped at the chance and I went, yeah, that's good, that's right in my, that's right in my hitting zone. Um, in baseball parlance, to talk about justice and loving mercy, these are fastballs down the middle, I'm just going to put these right out of the stadium, not a problem. Wrong. Turned out to be a massive problem. Now, I've worked in, I worked for Servants Community Housing for 20 years. Uh, many of you here understand the work of Servants, the houses in, in the Caracal House in, in Hawthorne and the houses here in Kew. 
And Servants Community Housing is a brilliant organisation and it does wonderful work. And that I had 20 years of my life working, and most of those years running Servants Community Housing was very special. So I applaud you and thank you again um, for your work in continuing to support the work of servants. It's awesome. So when you work with um, people at risk of homelessness for 20 years, you, you tend to gather stories very easily. So when Lauren said to me, Matt, talk about some of the stories and talk about justice, I thought, man, I can fill the whole two and a half hours with just talking about stories and then, you know, put a bit of a justice spin on it and it'll be, it'll be quite good. And then about three weeks ago when I really started looking at this um, issue, this subject, I thought, man, Matt, you are so far off the mark here in terms of what you need to tell these good people here. And so I started going down um, a rabbit hole of what justice is all about. And the further down the rabbit hole I went, um, I kept finding other rabbit holes that were buried deeper and then more that were buried deeper still. So right now I'm about three weeks um, down the rabbit hole. I must be about four miles down. And I suspect that... um, Maybe I'll come up for air in about 30 or 40 years' time, somewhere near China. I don't know. Because thank you, Lauren, you've, um, you've started something um, in me now, an exploration of, of justice and mercy, and one or two other words we're going to look at as well. So if at the end of two and a half hours you're sitting there thinking, Matt, that was the most rubbish speech or sermon or whatever we want to talk about, whatever we want to call it, and I learned nothing, please do know that you've blessed me by giving me the opportunity Um, to explore these subjects a little bit deeper. And maybe, just maybe, that will be helpful in taking Pong forward to do a bit more good work over the years. Could we have that first slide, please? I'm not going to talk to the slide. It's up there for you to look at. It'll be up there for a little bit. But the questions and the the verse that are up there, we're going to come back to that at the end of tonight. So just have a look at it. Take it in for now. Now... I've got to tell you, and you might have worked it out already, I'm no biblical scholar. More than anything, I'm a, I'm a storyteller, and I can just about manage to, to weave in a biblical message along the way. Um, so the first part of what I want to do tonight is I want to talk about four words, justice, compassion, humility, mercy. Then I'd like to talk about the concept of standing in the gap as appears in the Bible and then how we can use that in our worlds. And then I think we're going to look at three specific things. Uh, One is a community I want to introduce you all to that's a a little bit quirky. Um, One is I'd like to do a bit of a group activity. And one is I'd like to introduce you to a character from a movie. But... I'm never quite sure what I'm going to say next, so I think this is the way it's planned, but let's see how it works out. Thank you. So let's start start to look at justice. So I've spent a bit of time the last couple of weeks having a look at different meanings of the word justice. Often the biblical definition, the biblical reference to the word justice means to make right. Justice is first and foremost a relational term people living in right relationship with God, right relationship with one another, and right relationship with the natural creation. Justice is the principle or ideal 
of just dealing or right action. One article I came across this week points out that there are four different types of justice. Distributive justice, determining who gets what. Procedural justice, determining how fairly people are treated. Retributive justice based on punishment for wrongdoing. And restorative justice, which tries to restore relationships to rightness. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, who lived and died several hundred years before Christ, of course, says justice consists in what is lawful and fair, with fairness involving equitable distributions and the correction of what is inequitable. He must have been a smart fellow, that Aristotle, and I love to think of him and his pals, Plato, Socrates, the other great Greek philosophers, sitting around in the dust in Greece, maybe around a pot of tea and a packet of Tim Tams, you know, stroking their beards and trying to out-philosophise one another with who can come up with the smartest thing of the day. And I like to think, you know, maybe Socrates had an idea of... Uh, 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 no, no. But the moment that Aristotle came out with that, justice consists in what is lawful and fair, with fairness involving equitable distributions. I like to think that all the philosophers around the pot of tea, you know, oh, bravo, well played, Aristotle. The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat, and this occurs in differing forms over 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Its basic meaning is to treat people equitably. It means to acquit or punish every person on the merits of the case, regardless of one's race or social status. Anyone doing the same wrong should receive the same justice. And are we not aware in our own society um, how this is often not the case? Especially if we're white, western and male. But mishpat is more than punishment for wrongdoing. It's about giving people their rights. Mishpat, therefore, is about giving people what they are due, be it punishment or care or protection. And here's something really interesting. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, um, the, the, the Bible take, describes taking up the care and the cause of widows and orphans and immigrants and the poor. Justice is the very character of God. Psalm 68 introduces God as a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. There we are again. God identifies with the powerless and takes up their cause. So there's another Hebrew word we need to look out here, the zadokah. Zadokah is about being just, being righteous, and refers to a life of right relationships. Think of these words as mishpat being about equality and zadokah about being in right relationship with God. Mishpat might be seen as bringing justice to criminals, while zadokah might be seen as relating to law enforcement agencies, um, meeting the needs of the hungry or the establishment of a new not-for-profit organisation. So then I think we can safely say, in conclusion to justice, that justice is care for the vulnerable. Justice is a reflection of the character of God. Justice is being in right relationships, and justice does include generosity. So let's have a real quick squiz through the Bible here and just to get a, a feel of justice and how it relates to us in some ways. I've got to give you a warning here. Um, 
There's sweeping generalizations and headlines only ahead, nothing too deep. So in Genesis, man is created in the image of God. Mankind, as we know, is about selfishness and self-preservation. The weak are the easiest to exploit, easier to exploit than the strong. So who do we exploit? We exploit the weak. We need to treat others as being created in the image of God. Why? Because everyone has been created in the image of God. We need to treat people with the God-given dignity they deserve. And we need to seek restorative justice, seeking those less fortunate, advocating for the vulnerable, a selfless way of life. Proverbs 8 encourages us to, sorry, Proverbs 31 encourages us to open your mouth for those who cannot speak for themselves. In Jeremiah, we're told to rescue the disadvantaged and do not tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, or the widow. There it is again. And in Psalm 146, we're told that the Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. As we know, Israel ended up being um, a nation of immigrant slaves under the oppressive and unjust regime of the Egyptians. God God declared Egypt as guilty of injustice, rescues Israel, and then Israel promptly proceeds to commit acts of injustice against the vulnerable. Trouble ahead, God sends the prophets who declare Israel now guilty. History does show us that many times when the oppressed gain power, they become oppressors themselves. So one way or another, we all participate in acts of injustice, actively or passively. We're all guilty. But then comes the good news. God sent Jesus, not because of anything we've done, but because God loved us, because God loves us. A gift, the life of Jesus, dying on behalf of the guilty. Brief look at compassion. We cannot escape from compassion. Our Heavenly Father, amongst many other wonderful things, is compassionate. In Exodus, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Jesus is God's compassion made human. Jesus cares for and loves people, people who are sick, people who are outcast. He is moved by compassion to enter fully into human suffering, death itself, to rescue us and bring us into right relationship with God. So some encouragements now about humility. I encourage us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You know, sometimes the actions that we might choose to participate in, they might be the right action, but they might be for a wrong motive. The motive of how something might make us appear to other people. So let's be mindful of that. Let's not pray to be heard by others. Let's not give to be honoured by others, or let's not fast to draw attention to ourselves. I encourage us all to develop healthy self-awareness, develop deep, truthful, honest relationships with others, people who will tell us the truth. I encourage us to, to value others more highly than ourselves. And Jesus shows us what's expected of us when he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I encourage us to care about the interests of others. In Galatians, Paul tells us that the law of Christ is fulfilled as we bear one another's burdens. And what's truly amazing about that is that when we're all committed to carrying each other's burdens, our own burdens somehow become lighter. And maybe a bit later in this talk we're going to see that. Of course, this is not as easy as it sounds. We do seem somehow hardwired to put um, our own needs first, always looking at life through the prism of me or you. It's all about us so often. I think that it takes effort, work, practice, a good amount of God's grace to truly care about the needs of others. So I encourage you to use your position for the advantage of others. When we look at Jesus, we see the very definition of humility. He gave up his throne. He, gave, he put on human flesh. He entered into our experience and he allowed us to put him to death. And why? Well, for us, to allow us to be restored into that right relationship with Father. So let's use this as the prime example in our lives of using our positions of advantage and influence for the advantage of others. I encourage us all, when necessary, to be willing to take the lowest position. And then we come to mercy, the big one. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So amongst other definitions of mercy, the one that I have settled on and feel happiest about is this. When it's within our power or right to punish or harm someone, but we show compassion and forgiveness, instead, we're demonstrating mercy. And while we'd all like to think of ourselves as merciful, I mean, who wouldn't? It's not a trait that comes naturally. Mercy looks beyond what someone deserves so that they can experience what could only be theirs through benevolence. So if we want to be people who really love mercy, do mercy, we need to remember that we require mercy from God. The Bible is one story after another of God's mercy triumphing over judgment. Despite constant betrayal, God responds with patience and mercy. And in the singularly most outrageous display of mercy in history, the sinless Jesus goes to the cross as punishment for all of mankind's, all of our, in this room, all of our sins. We too require mercy from other people. I think we're all pretty supportive of mercy as a concept when we're the, the beneficiary from it. But it's when we need to extend it that we, might, that we might start looking for an alternative. We need to remember how much mercy we're shown by the people around us and the fact that it's not always an easy choice for them to be merciful um, and to show mercy to us either. Uh, hands up if you're married in the room. Yeah, there's a few of us, okay. So if you're in the room and you're married, you know exactly about being merciful and being shown mercy. And if you're sitting there thinking, but Matt, I'm married and I don't know anything about that, well, you're probably doing marriage wrong, I tell you. You're doing it too easy. Because marriage isn't easy. A marriage requires grace. Marriage requires mercy. I believe it's true that mercy can do what judgment can't do and real mercy we can see real mercy in gender change in people 
20 years of working in homelessness, I saw that time and time and time again. Men and women that we showed mercy to, we didn't have to, but we chose to. We saw them take, take hold of that branch of mercy, if you like, and we saw their lives change. Some of us here will know the, um, the book, the um, stage production of Les Miserables. If you've seen it, if you've read it, you'll know the character Jean Valjean. Perhaps the starkest example in, uh, in literature, maybe, of what true mercy can do and how it can engender change. We're called to follow God's example. In his great sermon, Jesus tells us that we're, we're expected to be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And although it isn't always limited to showing forgiveness for wrongs others have committed, forgiveness is a big component of mercy. And by showing deep kindness and warmth to others and wanting the best for them, even when they might not, or in our own very humble opinions, think they do not deserve it, at that point we're becoming lovers of mercy. English word for mercy appears about 300 times in the Bible. It's prolific. I guess that most people here believe in what the Bible says and want to do what it says. As far as mercy and our interactions with other people goes, perhaps we can synthesise down to perhaps one golden rule, as it were, where Jesus tells us to treat others in the same way that we would like to be treated. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this sums up the law and the prophets. If we found ourselves in a position where justice demanded our punishment, how would we like to be treated? Would we prefer, prefer the option of wrath or would we prefer to be treated with mercy? I'm guessing under normal circumstances most of us here would choose to be treated mercifully. mercifully. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Back in Genesis, there, there are a few verses at the very start of Genesis before sin was even a reality. God had expressed to mankind that sin would result in punishment, namely death. Eat from that tree and you will surely die. And isn't it true that both our personal experience and what we know of scripture deems us worthy of that punishment? Roman tells us, Romans tells us that for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But here's the really good news. That very first moment that we committed a sin, we didn't fall down dead, however much we deserved it. At that moment, and for each and every sinful moment since in our lives, and let's face it, this is a, this is a daily occurrence for us, we don't drop down dead. We experience mercy, and that's a wonderful thing. Peter names this as God's patience, his offer of salvation. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, he is patient with you, not wanting, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So do we recognize the goodness of God's mercy with every breath that we take? You know, we probably should. I don't believe that God has any obligation to us to sustain our lives. But nothing is holding his hand of wrath back from us other than his love for mercy for us, his people. 
And on top of that, though we deserve death, we know this, but more good news ahead. He doesn't just begrudgingly allow us to survive. He blesses us with his grace. Grace, another word that probably needs unpacking on its own. His undeserved favour. The fact that you're here this evening tells me very clearly that God did not smite you this day. Good news. Instead, you've probably enjoyed a meal or two. You might have watched something funky on Netflix. You might have taken your dog for a walk or done a bit of art or called your grandma. I don't know. You probably did all kinds of wonderful things. And God blessed you in doing those things. And that's a wonderful thing. So so you were not utterly destroyed this day. Instead, you were offered the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice to atone for your sin. And this was true last Sunday and yesterday. And if mankind can keep itself playing nicely until this time next week, it'll be true then as well. So do we appreciate that God continues to show us mercy all the time? And if we do, how will we begin to show mercy to others? What's your name? Jono. Jono. All right. Is that right? Jono. Okay. We're clear on that, Jono. So if Jono decides right now that he's had enough of listening to me, and he doesn't just want to walk out, he actually wants to come and and give me a good slap, okay? And he comes and and punches me. Well, that would be a pretty poor thing to do, Jono, I reckon. And my response might be that I want to hit you back. And maybe I want to hit you back a little bit harder than you, than you hit me. I don't know. But Jesus teaches us that to, to show mercy by not resisting someone who does wrong, but by blessing and praying for our persecutors. So, Jono, if you do come and hit me in the next few minutes, okay, I'm not going to hit you back. I'm going to pray for you and bless you. Okay? I promise you. You're welcome. Same for all of you. So the prophet Micah, He prophesied to the nation of Judah 700 years before Christ. He was sent to a society that had turned to idol worship, where the rich oppressed the poor. And instead of vindicating the poor, the religious and civil leaders took bribes and participated in unjust acts. Had the nation not been paying attention, but God had shown them already. Micah says, he's shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And then a chapter on in Micah, right at the end of that book, he says, Who is a God like you, who pardons sins and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. So that concludes that first part of what I wanted to talk about now, just getting a little bit of an understanding of justice, compassion, humility, and mercy. So now a little segue into where we go next. Um, as these weeks have gone on and I've um, started going down these enormously deep rabbit holes, I started asking a few friends, um, tell me your thoughts on justice and mercy. And perhaps, not surprisingly, there were, there were many examples that came back. Um, some, were a bit, some were a bit funky, but most of them were pretty good. I want to read you something from uh, uh, one of David and my colleagues in in Adelaide. Her name's Sarah. She's a lovely lady. Um, She wrote me this. I'm sure in many countries the lack of justice from the government and court system and court system down is sadly entrenched 
and people don't even expect honesty or a fair go in those places. It's who you know and what social ranking they have and how easily they can be bribed. Children, women and other vulnerable people are subject to the powers of evil people and have no voice to protest. It makes one very angry, and I've got to tell you, very angry is in caps locks here. A righteous anger that rises up and makes you, no, makes you want to slash need to do something. We should want justice so badly that it leaves us no other choice but to take action. I thought that was pretty wise. So at the Pong, we talk about standing in the gap of injustice. Standing in the gap is a biblical concept stretching way back into the Old Testament prior to being seen quite starkly in the New. In olden times, if a city wall was being breached, um, people quite literally had to stand in the gap that had been created lest their city walls um, be totally breached by the marauding hordes. Um, And that was uh, probably a very costly exercise on a personal level to, to stand in the gap. A dictionary definition of standing in the gap is to expose oneself for the protection of something, to take the place of a fallen defender or supporter. And scripture shares numerous examples of people standing in the gap for others. So let's just go through five or six of these real quick. In the Old Testament, God is ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. He lets Abraham in on his plans. Abraham intercedes on behalf of the people, pleading with God to spare the people if but 50 righteous people might be found. That proves more difficult than initially thought, and the number ends up being 10. um, And God, at that time, spares Sodom and Gomorrah just for that little while. Abraham stood in the gap. And then Moses stands in the gap. When the Hebrews made their golden calf idols at Mount Sinai, Moses comes down from the mountain, sees their handiwork, he's appalled, condemns them for their unfaithfulness, goes back up to see God. Rightfully angry, God tells Moses he's ready to do away with the Israelites and start again. But Moses stands in the gap, interceding between God and the people, pleading with God not to wipe them out. And God does not follow through on his original plans. Why? Because of Moses' intercession. In Ezekiel, we're told that um, as God is condemning Israel for their sins, he looks for one person, just one, to stand in the gap and intercede on behalf of the people, lest he wipes them out. We're told he could not find one. Move quickly now into the New Testament, and I'm not sure about you, but if you think about that moment in Acts when um, Stephen um, was being stoned and about to die, um, the last thing that he prays is, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, I'm not sure about you, I'm not praying that as I'm being stoned and about to die. It's amazing. He stands in the gap between God and sinful man. And of course, the ultimate example of standing in the gap comes in the death of Jesus. His very purpose in being born human, of course, was to give his life as the only atoning sacrifice for mankind. Our sin left us indeed leaves us vulnerable to divine punishment, to divine justice. But Jesus willingly offered his life as the only payment, acceptable payment for our sin. He stood in the gap by hanging and dying on a tree for us, for me. And as he hangs there, he says the most remarkable thing. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. I've always thought that as I've read that line, that he said that, he's hanging there, and I've always thought that 
the people, he was saying that about the people who were you know, in his line of vision, the people in the first two or three rows, as it were. And I'm sure he was saying that about those people. But of late, I've just started to wonder if perhaps what he was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I wonder if that was for everyone. I wonder if that's for everyone, past, present, future. I wonder if that's for us here tonight. I don't know. If you know the answer to that, do let me know. So we've gone through a few thoughts and ideas and a couple of concepts. Now I want to um, I want to ask you a question. I want to know who's seen the movie Schindler's List? Okay. Can you put your hands right up so I can really see? Okay. So it's about, about 20% of us maybe. Has anybody read the book Schindler's Ark? Okay. Very quick story. Thomas Keneally, Australian author. In 19, 1982, he wrote a book called Schindler's Ark. Um, it was a book that won the Booker Prize the, the following year in 1983. And then 10 years later, Steven Spielberg took the concept of the movie, of the book, Schindler's Ark, and turned it into the movie that we now know, Schindler's List. And I don't know, I don't know how many Oscars it won, about six million. It was a lot of Oscars. And Schindler's List is a is a very painful, very poignant, and sometimes quite beautiful movie to watch. It's about a German industrialist called Oskar Schindler. Now, Oskar Schindler was a paid-up member of the Nazi party. By anybody's reckoning, Oskar Schindler was not a real good guy. Um, he certainly wasn't the kind of guy that you'd, you'd want your daughter to bring home and say, here he is, Dad, here's the pharaoh I'm going to spend my life with. You'd, you'd have reservations about it. He was an industrialist, paid-up member of the Nazi party. He made a lot of money. He exploited a lot of people. Used bribes left, right and centre. And he ran an enamel factory. And he used, in World War II, he used Jewish slave labour to run his enamel factory. Something happened in Oskar Schindler's thinking during World War II as he started to see the destruction of the Jewish nation all around him, he decided he was going to do his little part about it. For years, he kept somewhere between 1,100 and 1,300 Jewish people, slave labour. He kept them alive in his factories. He had to use pretty much everything at his disposal to keep the marauding hordes away, the people who just wanted to send his workers to the gas chambers. No one really knows why Oskar Schindler had this moment of revelation or clarity or godliness or whatever it was, but it was there. In the movie, there's two quite amazing scenes right towards the end of the movie. As the clock strikes midnight and the war is officially over, his workers come to him and they give him a ring, a gold ring. And inscribed on the inside of the ring is a verse from the Talmud, um, a Jewish holy scripture. Um, and it says, he who saves one life saves the world entire. I'll say it again. He who saves one life saves the world entire. Oskar Schindler then goes off, 
The rest of his life, up until his death, was pretty much a failure. Lots of failed business ventures. Didn't really go his way. And of course, he eventually dies. There's a scene right at the end of the movie where, and the movie's shot in black and white. Right at the end of the movie, you see a hill. Thousands of people across the top of the hill. And the movie at that moment, for the last two or three minutes, comes into colour, modern day. And the people that you see across the top of the hill, they're the survivors, they're the survivors from his factories, the 1,100, the 1,300 people that he kept alive. It's those people who were then alive at that time in 1993 as the movie was made. And it's their descendants. And as these people come down and they visit his grave and they put a, they put a stone, they put a stone onto his grave, there's this incredibly poignant moment where you think, here's a man who, in so many ways, was an absolute scumbag. There's no two ways about it. And yet there's something now, like six to 8,000 Jewish men, women and children who are the offspring of the Schindler Jews who benefited because of what that one man did. I can see a few of you are thinking, yeah, that's pretty good. And it was. I'm going to have to read this next bit out because I want to get it right. Following World War II, the Jewish nation assigned a title to people called righteous among the nations. And you were deemed to be righteous among the nations if you were recognized by the state of Israel to describe, to, emotional, sorry. Righteous among the nations was an honorific term used by the state of Israel to describe non-Jews who risked their lives during the Holocaust to save Jews from extermination by the Nazis for altruistic reasons. He certainly did that. So I don't know how many members of the Nazi party received that award. I'm guessing it's probably not many. But if somebody like Oscar Schindler, who was a scumbag, if I'm quite honest, can achieve what he did with his one life and step in the gap and show compassion and show justice and show mercy, I don't know that he showed a lot of humility along the way. Surely we can do some of that good stuff too. I'm pretty sure that we can. Okay. I want us to build a wall. I need some, uh, I need some volunteers. I need five volunteers to start with, please. And John, can I have you, please, up the front? Thank you. While John's coming up, I'll just wait for the volunteers to come. That's cool. Oh, no, you're you're special, John. You're sitting down. You're here, sir. I need you to take the seat. All right. All right, just missing one. Thank you. Let's go. So what I want you to do, guys, I want you to form, I want you to form a human wall in front of John. Now, we've got to be a bit COVID savvy, okay? So maybe touch, touch fingers, I don't know. Now, Jay, 
you're my, you're my marauder. You're my evil person. Stand up, please. So, guys, you've got to build your wall, okay? All right. Well, we're going to have to be, have to be COVID safe, okay? Right. So here's the situation here, okay? <laughs> All right. John is in great danger. If Jay breaks through the wall, he is going to take John off and John... <laughs> All right, you're going to have... All right, guys, you're going to have to keep yourselves neat and tidy here, okay? Just for a moment. If he breaks through the wall, John is going to be taken off into the fishing industry, the Thai fishing industry. It's a notoriously, it's a notoriously brutal thing. Lots of people die there. Lots of people end up working in the fishing industry against their will. Now, Jay wants John on his boat, okay? And if you break through that wall, okay, John is in an awful lot of trouble. So as you start to um, try and break through the wall, we're going to need people from amongst us here. And John, this is where the rubber hits the road, my friend. This tells, this tells us all how, how significant you are. <laughs> as Jay starts to break through, if he does, I need people to rush down the front, put themselves into the wall and stop, them, stop Jay going through. Now, lesson from history here. If you're thinking... You know what the easy thing to do would be just to go around the end of the wall there. Yeah. Now, who's, have, who's heard of the Maginot Line that the French built in the 1930s? Yes. So we're just pretending that it's not a Maginot Line situation, okay? There's no forest of the Ardennes at one end, okay? You're not going round it, Jay. You're going through <laughs> it. So if you think, I'm not going to let John get carried off into the Thai fishing industry where he's going to be treated shamefully... Get ready to, to step into this wall. Off you go, Jay. What's gonna? Oh, we need some help. Yes, here we go. He's not getting through. Oh, the wall's. In fact, the wall's getting stronger. Oh my goodness. No, no way through. Our work here is done. Thank you, Jay. Good wall. You're safe, mate. It's good. Yeah. So in the case, in the case of Ping Pongathon, we want to we wanna help organisations build that wall so that young people don't get carted off into forced labour, into prostitution. But it doesn't matter what that thing is that God might be putting on your heart. If it needs protecting, it needs protecting. And if you're the people to protect it, God's calling you to do it. Good stuff. I said to you at the beginning that I wanted to introduce you to a community, a pretty special one. Could we have the penguin slide, please? Oh, yeah, that's right. Now, I have enough trouble, I have enough trouble understanding who I am when I wake up in the morning, so to actually find a picture of a penguin and put it up on a slide, whoa, that ain't happening. <laughs> But anyway, I'm pretty keen for you guys to use your imagination here. So I want you to think, imagine a picture of an emperor penguin. Now, if you're thinking an emperor penguin, oh, it's probably a bit like that cartoon character, Pingu, about that big and, and you know, waddling and pretty friendly. Now you're wrong. An emperor penguin is between 1.1 and 1.5 metres tall. An emperor penguin is a, fair, is a fair-sized unit in itself. Emperor penguins live in the Antarctic, where it's jolly cold. 
temperatures there can reach minus 40 degrees. The emperor penguin does an amazing thing to keep itself and its community warm and safe. It creates an emperor penguin huddle. Now this huddle might have up to 4,000 emperor penguins in it. Why are you telling us this, Matt? Well, it will make sense. If I'm an emperor penguin and I'm on the outside of my huddle, so I've got thousands of penguins in front of me, I am taking right now the brunt of the cold weather up to minus 40 degrees, beyond freezing. And if I stay in this position for too long, I'm going to die. That's a fact. But here's where the beauty of the emperor penguin and what they do as a community just teaches us so much. When I've had enough of taking the brunt, of standing in the gap, of taking that cold, I start to move in. And bit by bit, I start to move in to the very centre of the huddle. And it takes time to go from the outside to the inside. And you can imagine that if it's cold on the outside of the huddle, almost at a temperature that's going to kill me, that the inside of the huddle is going to be toasty warm and safe. And that's true, it is. In fact, it's so toasty warm and safe in the heart of the huddle that it can reach temperatures of up to 37 degrees centigrade. Now that is a temperature that, so I read, is really potentially damaging to an emperor penguin. So you cannot be the penguin that just is in the middle feeling pretty good about life because eventually you're going to die there. So you have to then start going backwards and taking your heat with you and taking your heat and distributing it, distributing it as you go amongst the penguin huddle, the penguin community. I always am blown away by this thing. Like sometimes, you know, I'm sure people come up to you and say, yeah, here you believe in God, I don't know about it, maybe it's all a bit of an accident or Big Bang and all that, but it's emperor penguins, isn't it? Like we've been shown, we've been shown in the natural world by something as simple as a penguin, how this works, the justice that is at work. The care, the compassion, again, I'm not sure about humility there, but they understand that there's enough. They are enough to see off the cold and they are enough to embrace the heat and care for each and every member of their community. I think it's tremendously special. So can we go back to the questions that we asked at the start, please? Again, I'm not going to... I'm not going to read them out. They're there for you. But maybe, maybe those questions now, a few minutes on, maybe they mean a bit more to you. Maybe you've got a little bit more ammunition now, a little bit more to think about. How do we bring justice into our world? How do we make loving mercy relevant to the world we live in today? I'm sure God will have different things planned for each and every one of us. For me, I've been so fortunate that it's been in working alongside those who were homeless and were in many ways voiceless. Simply put, I helped provide them with a safe home and a voice to have their stories and thoughts heard. And the past seven years have been so very privileged 
in encouraging Australian churches and Australian schools to pick up their ping pong paddle and join the global fight against the evil of slavery. I'm convinced that if God is calling you to something, he'll equip you for the task. Why am I convinced of that? Because I've seen him do it. I've seen multiple times in my own life and in the lives of others. When he asks you to do something, he'll give you what you need. So to finish, let's decide to be people who love justice, who love compassion, who act with humility and who love mercy. Let's ask God to grow our desire for each of these things in our own lives and let's ask God to give us opportunities to practice these things daily in our lives. And let's decide to be people of the gap. Thanks very much, everybody.